You're listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I am your host, well, kind of co-host, Rick Enlow, and I'm here with the main man, uh, Dave Hillis. Dave, how you doing? I'm good, Rick, and we are definitely co-hosts. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, and uh, I don't want to presume, but you know, we are in the final episode of a, a great series that I've enjoyed uh, talking with you and our guests about. Uh, we, we've been talking about moving from reactive to responsive leadership, but maybe give us a little overview for folks that are just jumping in. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, it, it's something that we uh, stole wholeheartedly from James Allison, who I think for those of uh, our listeners that have been around, they've heard his name many times. He's mm-hmm. had a deep and profound impact on Leadership Foundations theologically, Rick, but he, yeah. uh, here this last year, had written something uh, where he effectively argued um, that the Holy Spirit can never be found in reactive places. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can only be found uh, in hard-won places where rivalry breaks down and forgiveness emerges. And as we mentioned before, um, we were going to use that quote for our leadership theme for the year. And this is pre-COVID, pre-George Floyd. Uh, who would have ever thunk uh, about yeah. how appropriate uh, this quote has been? And so I think you and I have been trying to continue to you know, figure out what, uh, yeah, what are the dimensions, the ramifications of what it means to be a non-reactive leader and more of a responsive leader. So, Well, yeah, and it's been, uh, you know, a couple of things. Not only has that quote had such traction this year. But even when we started, we we started talking about leadership in the time of a pandemic. And some of us were thinking, that's a little short-sighted. That's only going to last a couple months. (laughs) (laughs) But as as it turns out, uh, the pandemic, um, you know, has uh, actually extended itself beyond most of our, you know, preconceptions. So uh, here we are. And and now we get to uh, actually move into an episode where we talk about public theology and the common good, and our guest, Ann Snyder, uh, is just a fascinating guest. And why don't you, uh, why don't you just sort of give us a little bit of her back uh, background in case uh, folks are, are are new to Ann and her work. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. And and, and maybe even let me uh, back up half a step uh, and kind of maybe frame Ann and the importance of this conversation about public theology and the common good. I think that one of the things that's been lost through the years is this notion uh, that there is what we would describe as a public theology that everyone ought to be getting blessed with, benefiting from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think these days when theology comes up, there's this instant sort of response of, oh, yeah, that's right. That's the private domain of those Christians or those religious people. And, you know, there's probably good reason to, uh, in effect, describe it that way, because we have not used our theology for the way that it was intended, which was really always for this common good, right? How do you, how do you bring about uh, the good life on behalf of all, regardless mm-hmm. of belief system? Uh, and again, you know, so much of that, Rick, I think, stems from conversations that you and I have had before about, you know, Jesus had a deeply personal faith, uh, but it was never private, right? It was always right. being worked out uh, in these public spaces, whether it was the synagogue, uh, you know, whether it was, you know, at the well, you know, with, uh, with Samaritans. So a bit of what I think we've been trying to do is reclaim 
you know, in some ways, something that was always there. And that is, you know, let's think about public theology in light of the common good. Mm -hmm. What was really in the midst of that, you know, Rick, that I had a chance to, uh, to meet uh, Anne Snyder Brooks, um, you know, as is oftentimes the case in my life, uh, when people say, well, how do you get to meet all these wonderfully interesting people? <laughs> There's just yeah, Dave, one, how, how? One, one, one standard stock response, and it goes by the name of Bill Milliken. Uh, <laughs> Bill seems to know everybody. And so every time I, you know, would go back, back in those days when we could travel uh, to Washington, D.C. and New York, he and I were kind of road dogs up and down the Acola Corridor. And Bill would inevitably uh, be introducing me to people. One of those about five years ago now was was Ann Snyder Brooks. Um, and it was one of those meetings, Rick, that it's, it's hard for me to overstate um, the sort of resonance that I sensed with Ann right from the beginning. Uh, I, this is probably a metaphor that's used too often, but you know, a little bit of that when Mary meets Elizabeth, right? And there's there's something within them that recognizes each other before a word is even, you know, hardly spoken. Yeah. And I just had this wonderful, you know, time with Bill and Ann that day. Uh, interestingly enough, she was working on a book that ended up being called The Fabric of Character, but it was still in manuscript form. And, uh, you, you know, for anybody that's ever written a book, if somebody says, well, you know, if you want another set of eyes and ears on this book, I'd be more than happy to, to uh, do it. And, uh, and so she instantly, you know, kind of emailed this thing to me and I told her I would write it, read it on the way back to, uh, to the Northwest. And of course there, my, my, you know, worst nightmare began to sort of emerge because I would want, of course, to give her honest feedback, but, you know, heaven forbid, what if she's not a good writer? <laughs> and so I did, I've prayed to whatever saint, um, you know, um, curates good writers got on the uh, plane and she was just a delightful read. And yeah. so I had a chance to make a whole uh, number of comments. Uh, and that really kind of forged, you know, our, uh, our uh, relationship at that time. At that time, she was working uh, for, um, I think it was called the Center for uh, Philanthropy. Uh, but then probably about two years later, migrated over to where she became the editor and is currently the editor of, of Comet Magazine, um, mm -hmm. who exists for public theology uh, in the common good. And so since that time, um, you know, I probably talked to Anne, you know, as regularly as I talk with, with most people. Um, she has uh, joined the Colangelo Carpenter Innovation Center trustees, um, she's a huge advocate um, of leadership foundations. Uh, we've also become a partner of hers with a group that she formed called Breaking Ground. Um, and uh, so Elif is a, is a strategic partner of theirs. Again, just trying to continue to figure out, you know, how do we do this thing called public theology for the common good? So couldn't, couldn't say enough good, good things about Ann Snyder Brooks. idea now marry these two concepts here um, um, that you know public theology for the common good which 
kind of makes sense, you know, just as a sentence. Yeah. And then um, the non-reactive component or or foundation or, um, you know, covering or, you know, how, how where, where do we find that, you know, in the theology yeah. for the common good? Or why is that, uh, you know, a, a facet of common good? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. <clears throat> and I would actually see, say that there's a, an idea, Rick, that connects the two. Uh, and it's, it's actually uh, something that Earl Palmer said many years ago, where he said that um, that which goes, you know, furthest, deepest to the heart goes farthest to the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, th- I think, you know, again, that's, that's worth repeating. You know, that yeah. which goes deepest to the heart goes farthest to the world. You know, I think in the past there has been this sort of almost false dichotomy. And the notion is, is that if I come into a space and I deeply believe something, that somehow that is going to put me at odds with the common good, hmm. right? Because it's it's the people who are rabid, uh, who are deeply convinced about things that are the problem children, right? They're the troublemakers in conversations, but I think Earl had it right. It's it's actually the opposite, um, because the deeper you believe something, uh, the deeper the taproot goes, which in effect allows you right to be non-reactive. Um, you know your roots go very very deep, mm-hmm. uh, and because of that, then it allows you, I think, to look at something like the common good in a much more relaxed fashion. Because you know in kind of the uh, you know, heavy traffic of ideas, you've got a deep sense of your own, right? Your perspective, and you're not <clears throat> threatened. I mean, one of the maybe best images of this is, I, I think it's in uh, Acts 18, but it's it's Paul's encounter, you know, with the Athenians. And, you know, here it is, he's, you know, walking through a museum, and he sees all of these different gods uh, and there's just a relaxedness to Paul, right? And he finally gets to this one statue that doesn't have a name. And he says, hey, by the way, uh, I know that God's name. I mean, again, not an ounce of reaction uh, in Paul. Yeah. And then he's so stable and deep-rooted that he says, and by the way, your poets speak to the very thing I'm proclaiming to you. I mean, that to me is almost the poster child, Rick, of, of what it means to do you know, uh, kind of public theology for the common good. Yeah. Because that which went deepest to Paul, he was prepared to have it go furthest to the world. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a great example. And, you know, one of the things that I haven't had the privilege of um, doing a little stroll through Athens, uh, um, you know, to kind of, I don't know, get my, it was like a huge gift because I've I've always been um, as a, you know, sort of hermeneutic uh, guy with the Bible, always, you know, learning more about the Greek culture. And I had this privilege to be in Athens. But what's interesting is that, you know, the the structure that goes all the way back to Plato uh, and, you know, Aristotle of the city uh, places the, you know, the agora or the the the, the common space, you know, yeah. and they, the whole idea that I had it explained to me, and it was so interesting to watch is that these, um, different avenues find their way to the common space so that even That's though right. you might live in the high rent 
district or or the other part of town or whether you were this this person or that person you came to this common space in order to not only you know shop and and uh, and get the things you needed but also uh, to converse and i think that the fact that paul uh, took the platform you know in the agora it just speaks so much to the idea that hey even the structure of the city was set up to say hey this is not about um you know, one neighborhood or being tribal. Yep. This is, this is about us. And, uh, and yeah. I think that, you know, um, yeah, in fact, you know, that's, that's a picture. <clears throat> yeah. Lewis, <clears throat> excuse me, Lewis Mumford, who, uh, was, you know, not uh, a person of faith. He just was a lover of cities and his history of the city, which is kind of this magisterial kind of tomb. You know, his argument is that essentially until you get to America, uh, every city was built around um, a spirituality, right? A mm-hmm. mosque, a temple, a church. And, you know, here's this wonderful secularist that says, as a result, um, the faith community was always the guardian of the common good. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was its primary role. And thereby you can't actually effectively work in a city if you don't think about her both socially and spiritually at the same time. So I think you're, you're exactly right, Rick. Well, you know, that even the, the idea uh, in the West of uh, something in common is kind of counter to, to the way we've yeah. established things. So to start with, um, you know, if we talk about the common good, uh, sometimes that, that almost seems like um, – well, we've, we've heard uh, people, you know, kind of describe the fact that as a Christian uh, person or, or as a person who's trying to represent Christianity in, you know, the kind of common space, that it's, it's more a, a, some kind of a battle to win yeah. back, you know, what's been lost. And it kind of speaks to your, the title of your book, you know, that when you think about the common good, you don't see the city you know, as yeah. a battleground where you're trying to win something back that, you know, slipped out of your grasp, but you see yeah. it as a playground where everyone is invited That's you know, right. together. That's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that's what Anne is going to speak yeah. to. Well, she's way. a, she's a, an eloquent, eloquent spokesperson with regard to, you know, understanding a bit of what goes in to what, what's common, right, about mm-hmm. the common good and what's good, uh, you know, about the common. And, and how do we begin to talk about this in ways that, again, isn't just a minimizing of what I believe, but actually can be a contributor, right, to, to yeah. the whole moving forward. And um, it's, it's been, she has challenged me uh, in ways. It's, it's been wonderful. I, every time I walk away from a conversation with Anne, I always find myself uh, thinking a another thought or maybe another layer of the texture of what what it means to kind of sit in this space. And uh, she she does a great job of it. So I think our our viewers are in for a a great treat to listen to and reflect a bit with Noah. Well, I think also the, you know, the context of the um, Colangelo Carpenter Innovation Center, you know, being in Washington, D.C., that's become one of the more, I guess, divided kinds of, you know, geographies, 
ideologically and even, you know, even economically and all that. Um, but right there in that space uh, is, you know, Anne working uh, with the idea of unity and, uh, you know, um, to, to, to see the, the relationship, um, you know, emphasis on what she's talking about, which is not very difficult to find in what Jesus was saying, you know, that he would call us to be one. Yeah. You know, that's the common good, you know, that's that, exactly that, right. that we would be one. Her work, not only uh, as editor uh, of, uh, of a periodical that, that focuses on uh, common, the common good faith and the common good, but also um, her book fabric of character. I mean, that is uh, to me, I, I'm amazed at the idea that somehow we could have tremendous leadership, but forget the character part. So I think I really appreciate, you know, that, that she sees that as a component of, uh, you know, a leading in, in this kind of a way, you know, Anne's got a bit of a, a pedigree with regard to her resume and, you know, journalist has written for, you know, a number of pretty top shelf uh, publications. But the other instinct that you sense in Anne immediately is that she wants to get down onto the streets. Uh, she wants to see what's working. Uh, you know, she wants to be able to um, tell the story of these people that have embodied a kind of narrative uh, that are bringing people hopes. And so her book um, is really about these different, almost case studies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, women and men that are in really tough places, uh, working in tough situations. And she uses her great skill of, of writing and telling a story to be able to bring out uh, what that looks like. And so she's a, she's a deeply uh, incarnational uh, thinker and writer. And that's uh, quite refreshing. Yeah, no kidding. Well, as you've described her, it's rare um, when we find someone that has, uh, I, uh, this is not original with me, but the idea or the sense that uh, they have not only the heart, but also the head of, yeah. you know, of faith, especially yep. in this tradition. So um, look forward to this conversation. So here we go with uh, our our chief correspondent, Noah Basket, and his interview with Ann Snyder. Uh, my name is Ann Snyder, and I am presently the editor-in-chief of a wonderful magazine called Comment, and it's actually out of Canada, although our audience is predominantly American. And um, the tagline there for us is Public Theology for the Common Good, which I'm happy to unpack in a bit. Um, and then I live in D.C. Um, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the capital city. Um, my sort of heart is often in like very local uh, texture, which somehow D.C. and all of its national, international import can conceal. Um, but uh, yeah, I've always sort of toggled between the macro sort of conceptual insights and cultural cultural sight, I guess, um, with storytelling at a very like micro level. And I'm yeah. hoping to kind of continue to bring some of that into comment. That's wonderful. Yeah, maybe um, I'll, I'll ask you here in a second about uh, the tagline of public theology for the common good. But um, before that, could you share a little bit about how you ended up at comment? Yeah. Um, kind of your maybe a little bit of your professional vocational journey that led you there. Yeah, sure. Um so I, it's like, like these things go, it's sort of a circuitous story, but um, in Comet was actually the first 
publication that um, really published a serious piece of work of mine back like 12 years ago. And I was just cutting my teeth as a writer. I didn't even know I was necessarily going to write for public consumption. Um, and I think I had done some blog entry or something on this book that Charles Murray had written called Coming Apart. And it was like a personal, I had written like something that I put online that was sort of like a deeply like personal engagement with this notion of class divide. And somehow Kama got a hold of me and I don't, I think I had barely heard of them. Also, they were more predominantly Canadian at the time and just asked me like to, to consider this large question about the relationship between love and politics. And I found it like so challenging the way they, and I was really drawn to the challenge. So in many ways, I credit them with sort of allowing me to pair this hybrid of um, sort of really interested in persons and uh, a kind of personalist approach to narrative with um, sort of my intellectual interest. So that was like the first, I credit them in that sense. In the midst of all that, I, I cut my teeth professionally as in the think tank world. Um, I wanted to be overseas. I had been international relations and philosophy major in college and um, that wasn't working out. So I, but I was sort of working in foreign policy at a think tank in DC and then sort of found my way into journalism, worked for a small magazine for a while and then the New York Times for a number of years. Um, and then in all of that was per a little what I was saying about my relationship with Washington, I was just feeling increasingly claustrophobic and like an elite bubble of commentary and punditry and top-down analysis and a lot of talking heads. And I had discovered um, this woman who would become a hero and she's no longer living, um, Dorothy Day, who founded the Catholic Worker and Catholic Worker Movement really. But that was, she just, among other things, modeled this um, marriage of real service in her case, like in the height of the depression, starting these kind of, she lived in voluntary poverty with these people who were unemployed and had nothing um, with, and she wrote, she sort of started a whole newspaper out of the in touch, um, kind of deeply intimate contact she had with those who were suffering. And there was something about that pairing that just really um, pulled me. And I, at the time was spending quite a bit of quite a bit of my time journalistically in immigrant communities on the outskirts of DC and long story short, mm. um, wound up getting a call from a foundation in Texas that somehow heard about my love for Dorothy Day paired with my kind of interest and embedment in a variety of kind of immigrant communities. Um, and, and they said, well, why don't you, we'll fund you to write about this confluence of kind of where faith meets culture meets class. Um, in the U.S. specifically and come to Houston, which is the most diverse city in the U.S. where you can study all this. So um, I was given this great adventure uh, for a number of years. And then in that time, I somehow that's where I just did a lot more writing and it was mostly narrative nonfiction. Um, but there was also this element of um, trying to understand the shape of institutions and healthy institutions vis-a-vis sort of an ever more pluralistic society. So I think I was, I was just always writing at those intersections through story and wrote, continued to write a few more things for comment, but was largely publishing elsewhere. And um, then the final thing I'll say is fast forward a little further. And I had this opportunity to kind of write a book for specifically the philanthropic community around character building institutions. And what does that look like in a super diverse society? If we're no longer in like a purely Boy Scouts world. And that book- yeah. It's called The Fabric of Character. That, I think, compelled 
common is a, is a unique magazine in that it kind of sits between cerebral scholarly thought and the praxis the sort of practical wisdom of organizational leaders of all stripes. Um, and I think they were just, they, they liked the sort of embodied wisdom that I was trying to articulate in that book. And it kind of, it gave me just this chance to um, be a bridge in many ways between a whole variety of nonprofit institutions that were trying to be form morally formative of their people and those they were serving, whatever their age background. Um, and the philanthropic world. And so anyways, there are just a variety of ingredients that they were like, this is who we are actually as a magazine. We exist to serve these organizational leaders first and foremost, if, especially those who really care about trying to be agents of sort of healing and grace in our society. And it seems like you're interested in those same figures and interested in serving them and equipping them and encouraging them. And you might enjoy running a magazine that um, puts content together for that end. That's great. Yeah. And I think what a wonderful that phrase that you described around embodied wisdom, you know, uh, actual, you know, real lived wisdom as practitioners, you know, so you're describing kind of this, this bivocational uh, kind of reality for you of, of sitting with people um, thinking big thoughts <laughs> about the world, but wanting to stay deeply connected. Yeah, I don't yeah, mean absolutely not not downplaying it, but wanting to also stay really deeply connected with people doing yeah. the work. Um, and I'm a I'm a fan of Dorothy Day as well. Uh, oh, cool. He was no slouch when it came to her own kind of theological understanding. Right. So she was okay. also similarly somebody that lived in both worlds. That's great. That's great. Well, hey, um, maybe to pivot off of that, uh, because it sounds like Comet Magazine uh being editor-in-chief there fits uh, so many kind of aspects of, or um, streams of your own kind of vocation. Maybe share a little bit about similarly how you ended up being connected uh, to LF, Leadership Foundations, through, I know that it was, you know, initially through Bill Milliken and you got to, a chance to meet Dave Hillis, but maybe talk a little bit about your intersections with Leadership Foundations and, um, you know, what do you appreciate about the approach and uh, why did you decide to be a, a trustee of the Colangelo Carpenter Innovation Center? Sure. Yeah. So I actually encountered Bill through a kind of adopted family, forged family that my husband and I have been a part of the last number of years in DC. It's called All Our Kids DC. The acronym is AOK. -OK. And essentially it's young artists in their late teens, early twenties who almost all of whom had not really any kind of a committed adult in their lives. And coming from fairly just like very um, chaotic, uh, you know, a dad's in prison, a mother's on the street, going from mattress to mattress, no sense of sort of um, uh, very few people who are like committed to to them. Um, yeah. So this is a family that was sort of created and it's a longer story um, that meet, met every week over dinner um, on Thursdays. Uh, for years and it sort of would pair these young people with quote unquote older adults who had the, you know, on the one hand, we had the need to sort of be in a much more non-status oriented, um, hospitable dinner table environment. And these kids had the need to just be like lavishly attended to. And so variety, so it's this kind of hodgepodge group. And I met Bill at this table and interestingly, um, 
I, I think I, this sort of, as this community was becoming a nonprofit, it was very organic and it was becoming a nonprofit quality. Okay. The leaders of it were trying to, we're just looking for wisdom on how do you actually work with youth um, coming from these kinds of backgrounds. And they had forwarded me a YouTube video of Bill from years past. And I heard, I remember watching it being like, and this community is like, doesn't really have much, any sort of faith component. If anything, people are kind of burned by religion in it. So, um, I was just, I was hearing Bill's talk from like years ago. And uh, I was like, who is this guy? He really sounds like he knows Jesus. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in this community, but I need to meet him offline. And so we did wind up sitting across from each other. He came to dinner um, as a guest and um, just kind of hit it off as everyone does with Bill Milliken. And fast forward, he connected, he introduced me to Dave and I just found Dave one of the most um, humble and, he truly is very like inflected by an Ignatian way of being and an Ignatian kind of imagination, which has played a deep role in my own sort of faith mind, I guess, over the years. And yeah, yeah, I just, I was, I found, I just, I found Dave just sort of endlessly impressive and encouraging in a way that was like um, very countercultural in the style of leadership. So that sparked my just curiosity about leadership. I have a deep appreciation for the way of sort of the approach that um, local leadership foundation leaders take. And I think there's just a, A, there's there's just a a sort of primary emphasis on relationships. There's uh, very little ego. I just love the sort of holistic view of the city and an idea, the sort of notion that um, we don't necessarily believe in creating one more program, but what what's most cities really need is connective tissue between all these different organizations um, so that they're not replicating one another. And, they're, you know, um, so, you know, delivery system. I mean, if anything, if COVID has taught us anything this year, it's like we should all learn a little bit more about um, supply chains and delivery. And, and I just think yeah. there's something about LF sort of appreciation for networks, appreciation for what's in between the thing. Um, there's like a liminality um, I, that's like somehow in the spirit of the institution or the, or the, the charism of, of LF that I, I, I just find very prescient and kind of ahead of its time, which is probably part of why it's hard to explain what you guys do in a soundbite because our times are not quite caught up, I think, to where we're all going to need to go. Um, in terms of speaking the language of connection, speaking the language of covenant, and also being very positive about cities. Like I think learning that this whole tagline of cities, turning cities from battlegrounds into playgrounds um, is not just some utopic impossibility, but is like grounded in a deep sort of now and not yet understanding of the kingdom of God already here. And so how are you kind of breathing life into what is already there if we but um, maybe rearranged our loves, our civic loves in a different yeah. way. So, yeah. I'm kind of still working out what does public theology for the common good look like yeah. in 2020 in, the, in this era versus what it might have looked like in the 50s versus the 70s versus far earlier. Um, so, and I, I guess I'll just speak my ongoing question here, um, not, not so much an answer, but when I hear that phrase and, uh, you know, this is comments own mission, 
I, we really begin by trying to think about what is the common good? What is the common good? What is the common good? And um, we continue yeah. to I think that's increasingly a contested question in our era of just because the common good, like words like character, actually, and other sorts of seemingly neutral goods, um, I think some would say the marginalized have never had a say in what the common good is, et cetera. So those debates are ongoing. And we actually hope to sort of cover those debates in our own pages. Um, but a lot of, in my experience, a lot of, um, I'll just say Christian, sort of Christian intellectual life in the U.S. and then sort of Christian literary life, a lot of it has been certainly up through the 90s, early 2000s, um, in my view, kind of ha had a certain view of cultural influence that is of course has an evangelism piece to it also has a bit, in my view it's sometimes a bit of a territorial like wanting to claim territory in the public square and yeah on the one hand i do i mean part of this broader tagline public theology for the common good is to say we do i would love to see more theologians at aspen ideas festival or at davos or um you know really serious christian sociologists at the table when policymakers are gathering i i do think there's something unique about a christological vision of your flourishing um and of human dignity that should be at all the top tables and it's our own fault as well as just the realities of secularism that that's not true however um i uh, this is probably very personality based i'm not saying it's like orthodoxy but i just am convinced that to be a christian is to be one who like cares for the society in which you live and so you have to begin from a place of kind of looking at that society and affirming what's there and then trying to be leaven with maybe some you know, disordered thinking. So like in Common's case, we like really believe in institutions, you know, guilds and families and schools and universities, um, government. Um, we, uh, we call ourselves like social conservationists, which means we sometimes puzzle like both mm. progressives and conservatives. Um, yeah. We, you know, we recognize the limits of politics without abandoning it. Um, and you know, I think there's a way in which we really just try to model, like, what does it look like to try to be charitable and generous while also being candid and critical when you, when disagreement is worthy? Um, and we try to do all this. I mean, ideally, I would love to see us become a magazine that truly is somehow playing a role in social renewal, be that experience broadly or in very micro ways. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, we like really are bullish on the world as at, not the world as it is per se, but we are, um, we're not, we're trying not to be too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Like we're really fascinated by the societies in which we live. And we think there's some great things about at least some, you know, some great things about say this, these Western democracies we live in. And so it's sort of like, what does, is there Christian wisdom or is there a Christian, are there, um, ingredients in the Christian imagination that can sort of further enchant the landscape in which we live and sometimes correct it or convict it. Um, like how do we, how do we play the role of conscience, not, as, not the role of kind of victor or. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, that's, that's well said and, and helpful for me, even in, you know, understanding the term more, you know, I think, what it, you know, theology used to be the queen of the sciences, right? And so you kind of describe this territorial, we just got to take back territory. We need to reclaim the rightful place of, you know, Christendom and theology in the world versus what I heard you say, no, public theology is more about 
leveraging, utilizing, um, you know, the deep resources that uh, our faith traditions hold, right? Um, on behalf of the common good. Um, right. not, and not, not to do so triumph, you know, triumphantly, but, you know, I, yeah. I think we are in an age where people are very interested in questions of habit and questions um, of dependence and independence versus solidarity and, um, I mean, there's just, there's like a whole moral landscape that especially this year, it's like really hitting people in some existential ways as they have time to reflect on their lives, on our society. And I don't think Christianity has all the answers, but it is a vocabulary that we just swim in creedily and that we swim in, in our own sacred practices. So I think there's yeah. like, a, this should, I, my hope is that this is a moment to sort of humbly offer some of that in a relatively fluent way um, mm. that's still hopefully meeting people where they're asking and not answering questions they're not asking. <laughs> I read, I read one of your articles um, for, I think it was comment um, around the beginning of the year around tribalism. You live in uh, DC, uh, you know, there's a, a tad of that there. And um I don't know if you saw that quote that I um, shared with you that we've been dealing with from the theologian, James Allison yeah. um, around, you know, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but it's, it's, it's very much around our all to human tendency uh, to find ourselves um, in these kind of pretty deep rivalistic tribalistic um, uh, ways of relating with one another. And that kind of being the, the place where, all violence um, begins. So, you know, tell us a little, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, and your take on um, kind of this rivalistic uh, fragmented tribal reality that we seem to be living in, uh, in our country, in the world. Um, what do you think is uh, what we ought to be paying attention to? And, uh, and where do you see hope? How do we get out? Yeah. Well, someone said recently, um, in fact, someone who may have been on this podcast, Stephanie Summers, who runs a great organization called yeah. the Center, Center for Public Justice. I was, Wishy and I are friends and um, she said something recently that has just captured what I feel so deeply this year in particular, which is um, the reminder she's having to give in her case, a lot of people of faith, they do like civic engagement or civic sort of education and political they call it political discipleship for then this is for people of Christian faith throughout the U.S. How do you think more Christianly about politics and about your allegiance? And she said, it's just been a year of reminding people of the most rudimentary things <laughs> like in that, in the Christian's case, like, you know, we are all actually united in this like body of Christ. And like, that has actually been a very needed reminder. So I what just that the point about the rudimentary has struck me as very true. Um, and I say that in the context of tribalism, just to say, especially on the backs of this election, we've just had, um, you know, part, part of why I actually, and I'm saying this both as a sort of journalistic observer, as well as, um, someone who cares deeply that we don't <laughs> descend. I mean, we, we all care. We don't descend into sort of like a real civil war of some kind again. Um, I just loved how the reality and the facts of this particular election, um, frankly shocked so many, um, journalists and pollsters. And I don't say that I'm not like thrilled that it seems like the pollster industry is going to need to reinvent itself. Yeah. But 
it just made America fascinating again. And it frankly, like brought the complexity of human beings back to the fore. Like we can't reduce people purely to their race or their class or their um, where they live in the country. Um, so, you know, there's there's probably lots of negative things we could all say about, oh, we wish this hadn't occurred or that or who, you know, do we really live in two countries and all that? But I think what what it really gave me personally what I would love to somehow find a way to sort of gently encourage others, whether through comment or just in friendship is um, just a reminder, like human beings are infinitely complex and that's a wonderful thing. And, and I think we need to get out of this. And again, this is in the American context where politics has become all of our religion more recently. Um, but how do we get beneath what appears to be like an utterly different worldview that we can't even, that seems incommensurate with the deep goods that we believe to be true. Um, and something about this, the sort of results and how evenly split they were, but not just for the president, but all the branches, I think I just feel renewed in an appetite to like not never fail to at least give someone the benefit of the doubt that their reasons for this, that, the other, and their sort of convictions um, should not be like generalized or categorized, especially if they come, come with like a lot of judgment from me. Um, so I don't know if that, I guess a return to personalism is, is how I'm feeling these days, especially in the last couple of weeks. Um, I, you know, I think, just as a person of faith and another, um, someone who I think also knows Tim Dalrymple, who now is CEO of Christianity Today, wrote a wonderful piece in the last sure. couple of weeks yeah. about sort of remnant versus regnant um, dispositions in, or remnant versus regnant Christians. And what he meant was sort of like, there's these two very different visions of the kingdom of God. And there are those who are very accustomed to being minorities in a given sort of moral climate. And there are those who like, grew up assuming that this was, we were the norm and we were dominant and so on. And I love that because it clarified for me, like I, I just, I think I'm really lucky in this way, but I grew up very remnant mentality. Like never, when I came to faith, it was a very, um, you know, it was sort of a hidden thing that I was, I was like this, the, the, the term from first Peter resident alien was just like my reality yeah. in very secular new England. And I'm not saying it's, you know, such a glorious, um, background, but I, I'm grateful for never having been tempted to, um, I think feel this syncretistic blend of kind of patriotism and faith or, or sort of country and kingdom. Um, and there's something about embracing your, um, identity as a stranger that I think yields this, desire to be repairs of these breaches that you see. Um, and yeah, I, I can't quite explain that except over and over again. And again, specific in the context of faith communities and how they interact with um, our public square and our country and our politics. Those that um, have not really experienced great cultural power often have some virtues the rest of us would do well to um, <laughs> like look, look at, um, so, and then on this issue, I thought, you know, this, this thing from James Allison about non-reactive leadership, um, I actually have that and Dave Hillis uh, passed that along to me some time ago and I keep it on a note, like a 
note pinned up on my desktop just to remind myself of it as I've been growing my own leadership legs the last year in particular. Um, and I really like it. Once in a while, if I hear the word non-reactive, that seems to it could mean really passive, um, which I think is probably the wrong interpretation. But um, I, you know, this year I started something this year um, as called Breaking Ground, which is this like collaborative effort to really try to crystallize the questions, the societal and individual questions of a moral nature that this whole, all these the crises of 2020 have unearthed and to just get clear about them, to sort of explore them in conversation with others and see if they lead us to a new reimagining for social order and institutions going forward. Um, and in the beginning of launching that, there were, we launched like the week after George Floyd was killed and, um, I facilitated some events that were very, you know, very racially diverse, quite somewhat ideologically diverse, but there was just a lot of passion and emotion from Americans out there um, speaking. In this case, they were sort of, um, they were speaking as people of Christian faith. And so they were speaking with theological words, but often from a place of, you know, saying things about white supremacy, for instance, or, um, you know, they were they were also using a lot of other sociological realities and using maybe some language and phrasing and principles from a strain of liberation theology or from black theology or whatever. And, you know, I got some real pushback and I, I won't say who here, but from several folks who are more on the right, you know, certain uh, white evangelical background. And and it was very it was a test of my own um this this principle of like how to be non-reactive um, because especially when you feel like there is a Kairos moment of um, some broader conversation where more people than normal, their hearts are softened to actually hear certain longstanding pain being brought to speech. Um, you know, my heart's really like on the side of like needing to leave room for that pain to be to be heard, even if it offends some of us who hear it only as shaming who we are or our race or whatever. Yeah. And I think it was just like it was a very interesting set of weeks there in June for me as I was kind of launching this new public thing platform and and getting all this pressure in some cases from donor types and others who have power. Um, and how do I not sort of get very upset at what I feel like are the bullies in the room who are just not patient before a conversation that could actually be really beautiful for all of us if we just had some humility to listen. Um, and honestly, I don't have any answers except a lot of prayer and some good conversation partners and, and also learning that um, non-reactive leadership doesn't always mean just trying to balance the scales of maybe one excess, you know, one in our, say, our ideological moment, let's pretend you've had, in, in your case, let's pretend you've done five podcasts that some people would think are all very left-leaning. I don't think the answer is necessarily to go right-leaning for the next five, um, which is sometimes that I'm just, this is in the content context, which is my context, but yeah. um, there's there's something about non-reactive leadership that is trying to seek deeper waters of discernment. Um, and that's as obviously, I mean, that's as much through prayer and wide reading. And um, I think being, sh at least for me, like trying as often as I can to situate my sort of friendships and, and in this COVID year over distance, phone conversations um, with those who are who are much more on the margins than I am. Um, 
which won't actually interestingly always yield sort of a progressive mindset, um, but does kind of give me a plumb line of who it is that I most deeply want to be protected and who it is that in my own capacity and power, who it is that I can um, honor. So I, I said a few different, a bunch of different things there, but. <laughs> no, I, I actually appreciate you in kind of even getting really practical in your own kind of personal leadership. It sounds like, yeah, like any, good challenging leadership context it's yeah it's it's always going to make everyone happy <laughs> yeah yeah and 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 the kind of i think it's very yeah your kind of description of the the kind of deep listening and presence uh that it requires to not get reactive or to not uh you know <laughs> feeling the pressure of a donor is a particular kind of um yeah. ease at which reactivity can come um I, and, I also Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, just, go ahead. I thought it occurred to me as you're <laughs> so kindly reading back to me. Um, I, I think just to be transparent, uh, something I struggle with a lot, and again, this is part of why I don't always love a place like Washington, D.C., is um, the category and our media right now, the categories are so binary and they're very politically um, framed. And those are just like fundamentally for better and for worse. I'm just very quite illiterate in those categories and I don't love them. I find them really imprisoning um, and false a lot of the time. And I think when I think about non-reactive leadership, where especially in the world of ideas and in the American context where you're kind of people are so suspicious. Well, what side are you speaking from? And why are you promoting this particular voice? Um, it's become really important. I mean, on the one hand, I always want to listen and I always want to be chiseled. And of course, in my own excesses, I want to be hemmed back into some deeper center. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I really have come to try my hardest and there's some spiritual disciplines associated with this how to not let others re-narrate what you're doing in their categories um mm. and mm. i think that's just become like quite i mean i have like a little <laughs> drummer beat to to just that conviction i don't mean that in an arrogant way but um uh, and there's, you know, some translation work that sometimes needs to be done so that people thinking in other categories at least try to not, you know, are not, don't misunderstand you, but um, just to sort of shut out the noise a little bit. And thank you so much for being with us on this uh, City's Playground podcast. We uh, we deeply appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Wow. Special thanks to Noah and Ann for that remarkable conversation. Um, mm -hmm. So great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think about this series and sort of putting a, a bit of an exclamation mark on it, Rick. And I don't know if we could have uh, finished with a, uh, a person that embodies uh, this non-reactive leadership better than Anne. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that, that Anne and I've talked a lot about, and I like the comments she made to Noah, is that there is a deep correlation between being able to be non-reactive and having curated a, what I would describe as a spirit of discernment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the ability to uh, sit in the middle of, again, things flying around us 
and, and really, you know, make use of this ancient practice that probably the Jesuits, as much as anybody, grabbed a hold of and to be able to ask a question, right? Take a breath, um, you know, not be rash. Um, I, I think her comments around that were, were wonderful and really epitomized probably the primary tool uh, that someone ought to have in their toolbox if they're going to be this non-reactive leader. Yeah, well, certainly uh, even as the Holy Spirit is described as gifting people with the ability to be discerning and or yeah. non-reactive. I mean, this this idea that, you know, that we can actually trust that God will help us uh, in certain circumstances, especially as leaders, to, yep. to understand um, and to discern and then to listen, you know, and, and move forward. Yeah. <clears throat> in fact, there's a, there's a little bit of a kind of a trick question that sometimes is asked, you know, when you, when Paul lists all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, the questions asked, and it's a thought experiment, is there one that's more important than all the others? And it's kind of like, you know, what? And you kind of <laughs> go back and forth. But the argument from a from a Jesuit perspective is, yes, there is one that precedes all the other, and that's the gift of discernment. Because every other gift, in order for it to be used properly, depends on having discerned the situation, the scenario in a correct way. Yeah. And so, I, again, I think she epitomizes that uh, in many ways. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Well, and as we've been doing on uh, our podcasts, we like to close the episode with a recommendation. Uh, we've... Uh, We've asked different ones, even ourselves, we've offered some uh, recommendations that help us see more clearly uh, the city as a playground versus a battleground. It could be a film, a TV show, a book, a poem, a practice, or just some insight that opens our eyes uh, to see the city as God sees the city. And uh, Anne had a, a terrific uh, recommendation. So let's, let's let her share that right now. You bet. So what came to mind when you asked this is not something we can really do in COVID unless you live in New York City. But um, one of my favorite museums in the world is called the Tenement House Museum and the Tenement Museum. And it's uh, it's really more of like a tour that you get to take of the Lower East Side. And you see all the layers of different immigrant communities from like the 1860s on, 1870s on um, in these old tenements. And I just mentioned it because you go through these different blocks and it's, a lot of it is now Chinatown. Before that it was Italy. And then before that it was filled with Irish and Germans and Jews. And, and I just feel like the very sidewalks are this parfait of layers of um, different ethnic communities uh, finding their American way while still trying to hang on to their traditions. And um, you just, I love the cacophony of that. And it, it is sort of, to me, it's like a Jane Addams sort of city at its best of just everything's moving in this sort of cacophonous symphony and there is no rhyme or reason, but somehow there still is some um, just like culturally delicious reason to it um, and people choose to get along. So Tenement House Museum for post-COVID, that's something to look forward to, highly recommend it. What a great recommendation from Ann Snyder, our guest for this week's podcast. Again, uh, Ann uh, was visiting the Tenement Museum in New York City. And I know all of us are really looking forward uh, to those days in the not too distant future 
when we can all do things like that again, <laughs> we can all get out and about. But uh, we thank nice. Ann and, and Noah for taking us on a, a journey, even if it's just a podcast journey. And I thank you, Dave. I look forward to our next chat together. Yep. Thank you, Rick. If you have any info, you have any ideas, you have any recommendations, you can always reach out to us at info at leadershipfoundations.org. Till next time. God bless.